Hello, and welcome back to the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. I hope you're staying strong, staying well, and staying sane in this year that we are calling 2020. It certainly has been a doozy in a number of ways and has left a number of people wondering about the importance of global engagement. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am your podcast host, as well as the executive director at the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. In this episode, we explore why international understanding is so important for everyone and how, while you might not know it, you have the power to make changes in this world. Also, we talk about the mixed bag of results around Africa's response to various health crises and how that impacts global and national security. I hope you are ready for another great set of interviews. Please, if you could, remember to rate and comment on this podcast. We would be most appreciative to get your feedback. We have been listened to in over 18 different countries in 26 states and would love to grow our audience further with your help. Many of you may remember hearing about the butterfly effect. The idea being that a butterfly flaps its wings and creates a small breeze in one area of the world. Then, as that little breeze ripples around the globe, it gains strength and builds into a hurricane on the other side. Today, the butterfly effect can best be understood through the current global pandemic. One person in Wuhan, China, was infected with the novel coronavirus, and the entire global economy suffered. This shows us how interconnected we really are with the entire world, as well as why it's important to understand global issues, challenges, and opportunities if we are to be engaged citizens. Craig Schneider, president and CEO of Indigo Global Corporation, has spent his entire career working to foster global citizenry and understanding. As he is transitioning away from his time as the president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Philadelphia, We took some time to talk about why international engagement is so important for Americans to have insights on. You can't escape it. And if you're not going to be able to escape it, you ought to understand it. You ought to participate in it. You ought to try to shape it. The lives of every single person in this country are affected every single day of their lives by what's going on in the world. And that's economically, it's politically, it's culturally. The effects are often positive and helpful, and the effects are sometimes negative and scary. Through his work at the World Affairs Council of Philadelphia, Craig led a number of amazing programs focused on engaging Americans and others in cross-cultural and foreign policy experiences. I would put that into two categories. So one is our programming, and even that I would divide in half between the work that we do with adults and the work that we do with middle and high school students. But in both of those settings, what's been exciting to me is to watch people learn different points of view, different points of view in terms of the political spectrum, conservative versus liberal, et cetera. Also different points of view in terms of U.S. versus perspectives from other parts of the world. And to really watch the light go on, whether it's a 13-year-old in middle school or it's a, you know, a retiree after a distinguished career, you can see people really have a light go on and have them say, I never thought of it that way. And it doesn't always change anybody's mind, and our job isn't to change anybody's mind, but it is to open their mind to make sure that they understand different perspectives and they process that information. And then whatever their opinion is, it's a better informed, more intelligent opinion. 
The other part of it is the travel. So I've been very lucky as the CEO at the Royal Affairs Council of Philadelphia because our council has a large national program that takes World Affairs Council members from across the country, all around the world, literally every, every continent. And I've been able to lead a number of those trips over the years. And truly, that's a great joy. There's a quote from uh, St. Augustine, of all places, which is that the world is a book. If you don't travel, you only get to read one page. And that's just the way it sort of landed on me, is I've been able to learn about other cultures, other peoples, and just as much, maybe even more, that teaches you about yourself, in your own culture, in your own home, because you see the difference. You see things that you would not even recognize as being sort of cultural traits or habits because you're surrounded by them. When you get out of that surrounding and you see how other people deal with certain things, all of a sudden you go, oh, wow, there really are different ways to do this. As we all know, with the pandemic still raging in many places, especially here in the U.S., travel is not something that many people can do right now. Also, in addition, there are many people who never have the opportunity to get outside their own city, town, or state for any number of economic, health, or other reasons. What are people to do? Look, of course, we all hope and pray that the day comes back soon when people who have the willingness and the ability to travel can do so. But in the meantime, you know, we are blessed to live in this world of technology where we can go virtually anywhere, anytime. You know, the way the cultural institutions around the world have stepped up and put programming online the way in which tourist bureaus around the world have stepped up, you can get a taste. It's not a full meal, (laughs) but you can get a taste of what's out there anywhere in any corner of the world while sitting safely in your home. And similarly, you can engage with educational organizations like World Affairs Councils and think tanks and others. You can read widely, including reading international press. And really, it's almost an unlimited access that we have today to information. That can be a burden. It can be hard to sort through. It can be hard to separate, you know, the wheat from the chaff, but it's all there. And people, I think, who are listening to to this podcast are smart, they're concerned, and I think they'll do a good job in sorting through for themselves. Craig is also a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, focusing on national security. Through his research and writing, he has helped interested readers to better understand the challenges that face the nation, everything from North Korea to insurgent movements to Tunisia. How do we as international engagement supporters make sure we are not just preaching to the choir? Yes, there is a danger of that. During the Obama administration, one of the senior aides of the National Security Council referred to the professional foreign policy community as the blob. And he sort of said the blob has opinions Some of them are more conservative, some of them are liberal, but they're all kind of close to center on a lot of things. And that it's really hard to go outside of that pretty narrow consensus. So yeah, there's a concern about that, but there's different kinds of information that's appropriate for different purposes, right? So some information is intended to go very broadly and you wanna be able to get it out to schools and young people and ordinary citizens of all kinds, regardless of their background. Other information is intended for experts, for policymakers. And I think think tanks, you know, tend to focus more on the latter. So I don't think it's sort of an either or. I think it has to be an end. We need access to all the different kinds of levels of information for different audiences. In terms of my own focus, it's American national security studies. I think there are some very, very large questions looming 
for the next generation of American foreign policy. What is our role in the world? What do we want it to be? What is our capacity? What are the interests, values, and ambitions of other countries? And how we put all that together in a way that hopefully leads to a world that continues to be relatively peaceful and increasingly prosperous, which frankly, the world has been in the period since World War II, largely under American leadership. So we've been handed a good jumping off point. The question is, can we run with that ball in the new environment of the 21st century and continue to achieve those very fundamental goals, peace, freedom, prosperity? With so many challenges to consider around the world, it can be difficult to keep track of everything without the help of a World Affairs Council to guide you through it all. As people consider these issues in their lives outside of our work, it can be helpful to think of it in this way. I think you have kind of two categories, two baskets. One is the truly global questions, the ones where the opposition, so to speak, is not another country or another culture or another people, but is sort of nature itself. We're living through that right now, both with the pandemic and with climate change. Those are issues that nation states cannot resolve independently of one another. They require joint action of some sort. So you have that sort of basket of challenges and they're severe as we are seeing right now. The other basket of course is the traditional geopolitics. Nations are still real things. We don't have a world government. Most people don't want a world government. And the reality is that nations compete for power. They compete for economic success. And we have challenges in that role, particularly coming from the rise of China, but also what I would call the dramatic punching above their weight of the Russians, who by sort of objective criteria shouldn't be a great power in the world. They have an economy of less than the size of greater New York metropolitan area. But yet they do in fact rate as a global power, not only because of their nuclear arsenal left over from the Soviet Union, but because they continue to be aggressive and frankly cunning in the way in which they use kind of the chess aspect of international relations. So I think we have to think very seriously about the challenge of Russia and the challenge of the rising China and really decide what kind of response we want to have. While it's true that not everyone is going to be interested in global affairs as they believe they have more immediate concerns, however, it is possible that a better understanding of global challenges could lead to insights and understandings of how to fix what seems to be very local issues. Other countries have found interesting solutions to police reform, racial inequality, poverty alleviation, and other challenges that the United States faces today. Perhaps the most important thing is to try to put things in historical context. So people have a sense of the fact that our country and our population has, has sort of been through all of this before, right? The World War II generation is sadly almost gone now, but if you talk to those people or you go back and you look at, you know, films of them. I mean, they'll tell you that if you lived in the United States in the 1920s and the 1930s, you didn't think that your daily life was going to be impacted by what happened around the world. It really just didn't feel that way. We felt like a very big, powerful country, physically far away from the rest of the world and pretty much in the driver's seat of our own future. And then look at World War II, which affected obviously literally every single person in the country in every possible way, including their fear for their physical safety. And then the Cold War, when we were the most powerful any country has ever been in the history of the world, right? In the beginning of the Cold War, uh, more than the ancient Roman Empire, more than anybody. And yet ordinary Americans went to bed many nights in the Cold War, not knowing if there was going to be a next morning because of the, the threat of nuclear war. 
So there is a vein of historical memory that if we sort of consult our elders <laughs> and, we, and we take the time to learn a little bit about history, we'll see that the truth is that there is no escaping the impact of the world on our daily lives. Look, at the maximum, if God forbid there were to be a major war between major powers, well, nobody has to be persuaded that that would affect everybody, right? And that's, that's obvious. But in the absence of that, look at trade, look at international trade. That is truly affecting all of us. Again, in some very positive ways, we have access to a greater variety of goods, many of them less expensive than they were, relatively speaking. But we also have sectors of our economy and geographical places within our country that are really hurt by the loss of jobs being moved overseas. So you've got the life and death question of war and peace. You have the economic question that affects our lives. And then you also have Again, these global issues, particularly climate change. The United States could adopt any climate change policy it wanted, even the most sort of restrictive of carbon emissions. If the Chinese and the Indians did nothing, the world would still have the problem. So we have to be able to come together in some fashion to be able to face this problem. As he transitions to his new role at Indigo Global, the clients will be changing, but the focus will remain the same. Indigo Global believes the world today is changing faster and more dramatically than ever. In an era of extreme volatility, tried and true models for doing business are failing even the most steadfast industries and sectors. The same could be said about international affairs and efforts to adapt to an ever-changing world. My new job is as CEO of a business consulting company. Really, it's a business-to-business kind of organization. We try to provide solutions at the CEO level to some of the biggest challenges that companies face today, not only in the United States, but around the world. And sorting through many of those challenges, whether it's environmental issues, as we've been discussing, whether it's social justice questions, diversity and inclusion questions, investment strategy questions, the integration of new technologies, things like obviously response to the pandemic, across all of these very, very important kind of transformative issues that companies are trying to grapple with, trying to figure out how to fit into this new environment that we're in. Indigo will provide, we hope and we think, important strategic guidance for how to do that. So where it fits in is Again, that I'm a believer that globalization, both with positive effects and negative effects, is here to stay. There may be, you know, speed bumps installed in various lanes of the highway, particularly around manufacturing goods. But for the most part, the increasing integration of the world, its people, its technology, its capital, its finance, is going to continue. In fact, it's going to accelerate. And so we have to be able to develop processes that work to be able to do that. Of even relatively small enterprises in the United States today have the ability to market goods and services internationally. They have the ability to buy internationally, you know, various inputs to their process. So it, it really is sort of omnipresent. And the question is, how do you organize it most effectively and for the greater good? So that's what we're going to try to help with. Many times we try to engage people in thinking globally while acting locally. It can seem that individuals cannot do anything to help solve transnational problems such as climate change, refugee issues, international terrorism, and others. However, as I will recall from my Power of One project in high school, no matter who you are, where you live, or what you do, you do have the power to make change in this world. There are certainly individuals who change the world, who change history on a sort of macro scale. 
a great many more people who don't do that in their lives, but they are able, I think, to live their own lives better and to make the lives of their families, their communities, their workplaces better when they are engaged in purposeful activity around things that they care about. And that those could be religious causes, they could be social causes, uh, they could be political ideas, and in some cases across all of that, right? But I think people need purpose. And I think they find purpose when they engage on things that they believe in, and they try to have an impact. There's an old bumper sticker, think globally, act locally. I think it became a bumper sticker because it was the truth. It captured the truth about the ability of people to think about big issues in the world. And even though they know that they can't individually change those things on a global scale, they can have an impact on those things in their own lives, in their own families, in their own communities. And I think that what I saw with members of the World Affairs Council over the years is a real understanding of that. They want to know about even you know, fairly obscure, faraway events, not because they're going to have a direct relationship to those events, but because they get that the ripples in the pond do go from shore to shore. And wherever they are individually in the pond and where their family and community is in the pond, it does get affected by the ripples. And by the way, they can ripple back. And I think that may be one of the great hopes that people should have about the future, even in this relatively dark time. We are more connected to each other globally. We have the ability to have those ripples I'm talking about go further and faster than ordinary individuals ever did before through technology. So it's incumbent upon us to use that in purposeful ways. I hope this discussion has helped you to better understand the importance of global affairs and that you realize the power we all have to make change in this world both in big and small ways. If everyone does one small thing to make the world a better place, that gets multiplied across the globe. the classics and whether it's Sun Tzu or Clausewitz or Thucydides, uh, they all can have uh, historical memories of armies being destroyed because of poor health. That is Dr. Richard Loban, adjunct professor of African security studies for the Naval War College, an emeritus professor and former chair of anthropology from Rhode Island College. In these times of a global pandemic, a lot of people are thinking about the ways in which health impacts our lives and those around the world. We are so interconnected, as shown by the coronavirus, that if one country's system fails, many more can follow. I spoke with Dr. Loban about the issue of health as a national security problem, particularly in Africa. Security is more or less what we deal with in all respects, from kinetic to psychological to communication all aspects. And one of the basic models which we use is the Maslow hierarchy of human needs. And in that hierarchy, before we get into write poems and constitutions, we have to be healthy. And the military has to be healthy so that they can have force protection. 
and, and the most rudimentary expressions are food and water. And after that, we're talking about human health. So it's uh, primordial for every military and every human population. So consequently, when I teach about African security, basically Middle East security and counterterrorism, you know, for the last 15 years, health is, is foundational and, and, and basic. Healthcare might not come to mind as the top security threat for many people who have not studied the region. Most of us hear about terrorism, famines, civil wars, and from time to time, Ebola. Well, in the world of counterterrorism, mostly I'm dealing with Al-Qaeda and ISIS clones, which are very numerous in Africa. Usually they're dealt with in a much more kinetic way, you know, intelligence and then action. But of course, when regions are destabilized, as they are across the Sahel in various uh, countries, then the infrastructure will fail. And so ideas of quarantining and civil society and so forth will not be able to be introduced. In many places across the region, there appears to be a direct and intuitive connection between insurgency groups and areas where outbreaks of various diseases have been detected. One of the most you know, dramatic cases would be that of Afghanistan and uh, Nigeria, where they still have ongoing uh, polio and both have insurgencies. So that's a, a tragic case when polio can be, should be completely eliminated. But then, of course, for Ebola, it was a problem. The areas of Liberia, Congo, and Sierra Leone were areas where there were lingering insurgencies. And not surprisingly, that's where we found the uh, spread of, of Ebola. We all know about the HIV-AIDS crisis and the outbreaks of Ebola across the continent, but there are many more diseases that people have to worry about, particularly in regions that are experiencing economic, political, and military strife. Well, the, the most persistent of all is malnutrition. Protein calorie malnutrition, just because people are poor and not properly eating a nutrition-balanced diet. But after that, in the major diseases, they're parasitic, uh, diseases. And of course, amongst those in Africa, the largest and biggest killer of all in Africa is malaria. And then we have the uh, bacterial diseases, of which maybe the most common for Africa is cholera, but any uh, bacterial infection. And then, of course, we have the viral diseases, which have included Zika and uh, SARS and MERS and uh, Ebola, HIV, AIDS, which has been a big killer in southern Africa. So those three categories all are in the main disease vectors. Certainly, disease kills far more people than actually military conflict. So it just once again demonstrates that for military security, you've got to have health security. This leads to the age-old chicken and the egg question. What comes first, instability and terrorism, which leads to health care issues? Or are terrorist organizations using health crises to build their own strength and delegitimize government? Well, certainly not to fall in the chicken and egg uh, trap. Uh, I'll get to the scrambled egg approach and say that it's synergistic. Because when you have weak and failing states that can't deliver health, nutrition, education, social services, uh, and security against crime, then, of course, they can deliver the institutions of nursing and hospitalization, vaccinations, and so forth. So once you get on that declining trajectory, then, of course, it's a ripe situation for people to pick up arms 
and say that they have the solution to these problems when probably they don't have the solution either, but it is synergistic and one feeds upon the other. And once you have a failed state, for example, uh, Libya, which I specialize in, it's a completely failed state. And now COVID is actually increasing in Libya. Of course, no international conversation, especially about health security, can go too long without coming to the 900-pound elephant in the room, the coronavirus pandemic. The big countries in Africa for COVID have been in the Maghreb, Morocco, Algeria, uh, and Egypt, and then South Africa, Nigeria, and Ethiopia, the most populous, most urban places, they have the highest rates of uh, COVID. However, despite what you might expect, the pandemic has not hit Africa too hard yet, at least based on the information available. It is interesting that in countries where health systems are failing, infection rates and the death toll is lower than many advanced countries, even those with top-rated healthcare systems. First of all, we should congratulate Africa for having rather low rates when it's reasonable to expect that they would have some of the worst. Some of the worst, of course, uh, worst of all is U.S. and so forth. One nearby state in Oman has a very high rate, but there's at least 10 states in the U.S. I wrote them down, Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, Nevada, Arizona, Alabama, South Carolina, Texas, Idaho, and Tennessee. They all have worse rates than even the worst in the Middle East, namely Oman. That's the first part of the story. Another part, maybe to get a little critical thinking, is that we're not really sure of the data. The data might not be as good in terms of reporting and testing, uh, so that it could be actually higher than it seems. But taking the data for what they are, we found in March, there were just maybe already a few hundreds of cases in by the end of March in America and U.S., and just hardly 300 in Africa. By July, 12,000 in Africa, continentally, 150,000 roughly in the U.S., so already we're looking really badly. By August, 23,000, so only a small increase. U.S., maybe 180,000 by that time, so seven, eight times more. And now, according to statistics I saw for September, 34,000 deaths in Africa, and we've just crossed the over 200,000 in the U.S. So the U.S. is leading backwards really fast. And Africa, back to the key question, is probably doing better because they have better governance. I mean, some cases, they're very urban and they're not good cases, but that's probably six cases in Africa of 54 countries. So basically, it's not so bad. Uh, Many African countries uh, also are quite rural, and people are are quite far-spaced, and people are not migrating much, so it's sort of a spontaneous quarantining in that respect. So those are the data, the best we know. Maybe some conditional look at them to see quality of the data, but the demographic profile and much better leadership. The U.S., comparatively speaking, has some of the poorest and most conflictful, problematic uh, leadership, which has uh, unquestionably accounted for the high death rate here. With the global scope of the pandemic, it is clear that no one will be safe until everyone is safe. Yes, there will be vaccines coming out, but they may not be 100% effective. Also, they will not be ready all at once. Therefore, the global community should come together to combat these issues together, 
Building off of great global health responses in the past, the George W. Bush response to HIV-AIDS on the continent, and the Obama administration's efforts to help with Ebola, could be valuable outlines for how this would work. One would imagine that the U.S. would be interested in partnering with these countries to ensure their infection rates stay low. Actually, pretty little. Facts that I just presented show that we're the one that's not properly controlled, and African countries are. To congratulate George Bush with PEPFAR, you know, it was already recognized as a global problem, particularly in urban areas and in South Africa, Southern Africa at large. And he was motivated because he was a compassionate person, also motivated by evangelical beliefs. So he had the ABC program, which had a religious component as well as epidemiological and demographic. So he, he should be congratulated for, you know, doing a lot. When Ebola came along, then Obama had to deal with that. And there was a great sense of alarm, even xenophobic response. But we stepped up to that really fast, using a military approach, actually. And uh, it was calmed down. I mean, so that we're talking about maybe 10, 15,000, maybe 20,000 deaths, a tenth of what we have uh, in this particular case. And it was confined and strictly uh, quarantined upon anybody uh, arriving. I think there were maybe three cases or five cases and they were quarantined and, and cured. There were a couple of deaths in the U.S. So that contrasts, sadly, with the basically poor response in the U.S. and practically doing nothing relative to Africa, you know, in terms of foreign policy or delivering uh, vaccines and so forth. Given that, and other countries' signals throughout this pandemic, it does seem that the U.S. is not the only country not looking to pool resources and coordinate responses. This is most obvious in the global response to the search for a vaccine. We have another problem lurking behind the scenes, namely the approaches, the vaccine, which nobody has at this point, and nobody has proven efficacy, nor economy, nor sufficient quantity, nor bad effects. So we're waiting for that. There's some reason J&J or maybe Pfizer or... uh, AstraZeneca may, may be producing something. There's a company in India, Serum Institute, which may be hot on the trail, but without vaccine. And now because there's such disinformation, it, there, there's reason to believe that many people, even if the vaccine were available, they wouldn't use it because they have fear of vaccine. Whenever they would finally find a vaccine, which might happen uh, sooner or later, it's, it's unclear when that's exactly going to happen then they have to make it in sufficient quantity and then they have to prioritize from a moral, ethical, maybe even legal, and particularly epidemiological level, who's going to get first in line. Should it be first responders? Should it be the most vulnerable? Should it be the least vulnerable to protect them so they don't infect the most vulnerable? And so we're going to have a very gigantic uh, question. The U.S. is usually fairly stingy in such respects, and they'd probably divert most of their surplus if they even, we can talk about a surplus when we don't have any. Whereas for the third world, India has often prioritized third world populations. In that case, if they produce quantities like the Serum Institute, then they may have prioritized third world countries. So there are many intersecting complexities. First and foremost, we don't have anything to deal with? And secondly, what about the quantity? And then thirdly, who who gets first in line? 
So as not to leave on a sour note, Dr. Lobin has some great advice for understanding the coronavirus pandemic, which can also apply to many other issues we see in this country today. Well, I always say when it comes to uh, security at large and health security in particular, because it's at the foundation of the Maslow hierarchy of human security needs, is that we fight fiction with facts. And the better data, the better decisions. The worse the data or the more fabricated or distorted the data or incomplete are the data, the worse the decisions. So my first degree is in biology and my graduate degrees are in anthropology. And so we're really keen to look at the bottom up because that's where the answers uh, to these uh, huge questions will uh, be found. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another Global in the Granite State podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and we cannot wait until our next episode drops. Please do comment, like, and share this out with your friends. Tim Horgan is our host, interviewer, editor, and producer. Our theme music is Admin by A.A. Alto. Our other songs are Dub in the Sun by Dubstyle and Malady by Chocolat Billy. This is the Global in the Granite State. <laughs>